We're going to continue our series on eternal security this morning called Secure. Today we want to look at our position in Christ and we want to talk about how our position in Christ is a a strong argument, hopefully a persuasive argument, an encouraging argument as it relates to our eternal security and why we can believe that you can be saved today And it has nothing to do with anything that you do going forward. It has everything to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we want to look at that. And and one of the things about the truth of your position in Christ, if you're a believer, is you've got to understand you can be in no better position before God than you are right now. It doesn't matter what kind of week you've had. It doesn't matter what kind of month you had. If you are in Christ and you are placed in Christ when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be in no better position in the history of the world than you are today. That's the truth of the word of God. And one of the things is we've got to understand is that in this position, in Christ, you are in the safest, the highest, the most privileged and secure position in the history of mankind. That's where you reside today. That's who you are. That's your, your, your birthright. And you know, for many believers, we need to understand that when you were born again, you are born rich. You were born wealthy. And in fact, many of us, it takes us a lifetime to realize the wealth that we possess in Christ. But you know what? You have it the day you are born again. These are the, the incredible reasons why when we talk about our position in Christ, why it's just another strong argument of our eternal security. And just as a quick review, you know, when we talk about eternal security, we're talking about this. This is the definition that we've been going with in this series. It means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. That means that your eternal security is not based on your feeble hold on Jesus Christ, but on his strong grip of you. That's what eternal security is basically saying. And this is why salvation, eternal security assurance, it's not even based on the nature of your faith. You know, people try to qualify faith and quantify faith, and they try to give give all these qualifiers. Like, do you have true saving faith? You know what I want to say when people ask me that? If you can show me the Bible verse that uses that phraseology, I'll try to answer your question. Until then, it's not a good question. True saving faith, the Bible doesn't talk that way. This talks about faith. It doesn't talk about quantity of faith or how long your faith goes, that you have to have some kind of enduring faith to stay saved or some enduring faithfulness. No, the value is in the object of your faith. That's where the value lies. It's not about how much you got, what kind you got. It is who or what have you trusted in to solve your sin problem. Who or what have you trusted in to solve your lack of righteousness? That's the million-dollar question. Because I can trust in Jesus Christ or I, I can trust in a tree. I can trust in Jesus Christ or I can trust in a church. I can trust in Jesus Christ or I can trust in a pastor or a religion or another God that I just create that doesn't even have hell, right? I can just make up all this stuff. You can trust in all those things. Who's the one who died for you and rose again? You, t- you tell me one of those other options that actually accomplished what Jesus Christ did, taking care of your debt and also taking care of your righteousness issue. You've got no other savior. This is why the scripture is clear. Put your faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished. He is the one who's accomplished it. And he's done it 
all. And see, this is why salvation, this is why the emphasis in the Bible on salvation today is a belief issue. It's not a sin issue. And see, part of the problem for many people as we wrestle through this topic of eternal security is we still want to make sin in a believer's life the issue as to whether or not they'll go to heaven and hell. And they want to make sin that could happen 30 years from now or consistent sin or big sin. And even that qualifier, is there any other kind of sin to God? We said like, God, like, oh, that's not as bad. No, no. Every sin is deeply offensive to a holy God due to his character. Now, we categorize sins. I mean, I, I get that as a, on a human level we do, but God doesn't. That means that the evil thought that you had in your mind that never manifested itself to anybody else, nobody ever saw, in your bedroom, in your bed, in the dark, under the covers at night, no one's ever seen, it's just as deeply offensive to a holy God as if you would have gone out that night and gotten drunk and woke up in a gutter. And we don't think that way oftentimes. We, we got them kind of categorized. The good news about what Jesus Christ accomplished in the gospel is sin is no longer the issue. Sin doesn't have to send anybody to hell. You know what sends people to hell? It's one thing. It's rejection of Jesus Christ. It's rejection of God's solution. That's what John 3.18 teaches. That's what John 3.36 teaches. Why? Because sin is now off the table. The penalty for sin has been paid. The question is, will you trust in the substitute who wants to pay it for you, or do you choose to pay it yourself on an eternal price tag? That's the decision that everyone has to make. And so sin is not the issue. We're going to look at that a little bit more this morning. So when we use the term eternal security, we're talking about the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint. In other words, God knows who's saved. God knows who's not. God knows who possesses eternal life. And God knows who doesn't possess eternal life. And if somebody possesses eternal life, that by definition means they're going to live forever. So they're saved. So God knows this. So when we talk about eternal security, we're talking about God's viewpoint on the certainty of someone's salvation. But when we talk about assurance of salvation, we're talking about somebody's assurance from their own viewpoint. And you know, that fluctuates because we're oftentimes human and oftentimes our thinking doesn't align with God's word. And oftentimes, oftentimes we can't take God at face value as what he's saying in his word. So, so we'll fluctuate. You know, and this is why, like I think I've shared as a kid, you know, I probably asked Jesus into my heart like, um, you know, 500 times. I, I probably walked the aisle probably another 50 or 60 times throughout my life. Why did I do that? Was it because I didn't think Jesus did enough? No, I love Jesus. I thought he did enough. I just still had a confusion that somehow my salvation was based on how I lived. And so my assurance was, all, was always messing with me, but my security before the God of the universe, the only one whose opinion matters, I've been saved since I was five years old based on the testimony of the word of God because that, that's when I trusted in Jesus Christ who died for me and rose again. So we're, we're not using assurance and eternal security synonymously, but our hope is that through this series and just the encouragement of the word of God, that, that those two things would come in line with one another. That you could, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you can rest assured that your salvation is, is secure based on the testimony of the word of God. You know, one of the things I love about Christianity, it's not like an infomercial, but it is. And I was, actually saw one of these just the other day on TV. It was really funny because I'm waiting for this line, right? I'm watching this infomercial. It was this, 
you know, who would have thought we'd ever have an infomercial for like frog masks that go under your mask and like that protect you more from, from COVID, but we do. It's out there. You can buy them. And if you act now, you can get like six of them for free. You know, that's kind of the deal. So, but I'm watching this infomercial and what line am I waiting for? You know what line, but wait, there's more. <laughs> you know what? That's Christianity. That is life for the child of God. You were born rich. You know some of the things you possess, but just when you think you've got it all figured out, just wait, there's more. There's more. What has he said? You can't even fathom in your thinking the depth and the width and the, and the breadth and you know, whatever else direction that, that Paul gives there. I can't remember the verse. The love of God, right? I mean, we don't even understand that completely. There's always more. So when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, oftentimes we understand so little of what is true of us. And we've, we know so little of the immeasurably prosperous, unbelievable position that God has placed us in, in Christ. We are born rich, as I said earlier, but oftentimes we live in abject poverty when we don't have to spiritually. And this is one of those things when we talk about the scriptures, it just speaks of numerous blessings. All of these I'm about to fly through could be one sermon in and of themselves, probably a sermon series. But just consider some of these blessings that you have as a believer because you're in Christ. You've been born into the family, not only any family, but a very wealthy family, the family of God, spiritually rich. You've been reconciled, taken from a place of an enemy and brought into the position of friendship. You've been redeemed. The purchase price needed for your salvation has been paid in full, not left for you to pay a dime. Your sins have not been covered. They've been taken away. They've been separated from you, never to return again so that you would have to face judgment for those. You've been forgiven. I mean, think about the worst thing that you've ever done. And to know that through the death of Jesus Christ, that's been washed away, that God can actually forgive you. You know, what's interesting is it's easier to be forgiven by God oftentimes than it is to forgive ourselves. You ever notice that? Those kind of things just linger in our minds, not with God. Why? Because he's looking at the finished work of Christ. And you know what? He loved it. He was pleased with it. He accepted it. How do we know that? He rose him again from the dead three days later. He said, that is my stamp of approval on him. Fully accepted, fully loved. Everything is good with him. Everything is good for the penalty of your sins. You're forgiven. Your sins are taken away. You're free from the law. Now, that doesn't mean you're free from the law to be lawless, but he's got a new mechanism in place so that you can be spiritual and live righteously. And it's called the indwelling Holy Spirit. You've been adopted. It means you have a full inheritance. It means you've been accepted because your acceptance is based on the acceptance of Jesus Christ. And can you ever imagine a day in heaven where God the Father says, you know, Jesus, get away from me. I don't want to be around you today. I can't imagine a day like that either. And because you're in Christ, you are in his presence consistently. You've been justified, declared righteous. Me declared righteous? I mean, doesn't God know what, I'm, what I've done? Doesn't God know what I think? Doesn't God know what I might do? And he's already declared me righteous. He's brought the gavel down. And that's a, a stated fact based solely on my faith in Jesus Christ, not on my ongoing faithfulness in life, but I've been declared righteous. I've been brought near. 
I've been delivered from the power of darkness. I'm a partaker of the holy and royal priesthood. I've got unhindered access to God. I don't have to take a number. You know, it's harder to get a hold of an AT&T salesperson than it is God Almighty, the one who created the universe. Because we have this unhindered access. This is incredible. We, we blow past these truths, but look at these privileges that we have. We're a heavenly citizen. Praise God. The way our country goes with politics, I'm glad I've got a different citizenship, right? Everyone's like making contingency plans, buying you know, land in all these different countries just in case America goes down. We got another citizenship. In fact, it's our primary citizenship. Man, praise God for that. We're united to Jesus Christ. More on this. We're complete in him. More on this. And then eternal security. And in short, as Nate read in Ephesians 1.3, we have been given most spiritual blessings in Christ, some spiritual blessings in Christ, all spiritual blessings. We got it all. You got it all, guys. Your bank account is full. Your bank account can't even contain another deposit because it's all there. We already possess this. This is the encouraging truth of our position in Christ. What I want to talk about now this morning is how does God secure all these blessings? How, how can God guarantee that you possess those blessings never to, to lose them, especially as it relates to eternal security, because that's really our series that we're talking about. And I want to look at three things. Two, I want to move quickly through. The third one, I want to camp down on and develop. And so let's go through the two quick ones. Quite frankly, simply put, the reason God can consider it, because he promised. That should be simple enough. God gave his word. He doesn't lie. He promised certain things. Done deal, shut the book, let's go home, right? That's really all we should need. We're gonna develop this further because he goes through and explains even the mechanism by which he guarantees these blessings. But if all we had was his word, that should be enough. That should be plenty. In fact, he can't break his word. Some of those promises that we see as it relates to salvation is that believers shall not perish, right? That means what? They'll never have to face that death penalty. They'll never have to pay that debt that we sang about. Why? Why would we never have to face? Is, is God an unjust judge? He's not going to punish lawbreakers? Oh, no. He is going to punish lawbreakers. In fact, he's already punished lawbreakers via their substitute 2,000 years ago. His punishment on your behalf paid that debt in full. And this is why God in John three sixteen says, whosoever believes on him, not whosoever believes and lives a faithful life, whosoever believes and stops sinning so much, whosoever believes and add whatever, there's nothing else there. Whosoever believes in him, promise of God shall not perish. Won't face the death penalty. John 10, 28, we looked at that. Jesus gives them eternal life and they shall never perish and you remember, we went through that a few weeks ago, double negation in the Greek and a phrase that's not translated in our translation because it would get too wordy. And I wish they would have got wordy. I mean, I mean, you got 66 books already. You're not, gonna add, you're not adding another page. You're just adding a line here. But you remember what they, the translation that's, that's in the Greek text, it's you shall never perish, no, not ever, forever, into the ages. I mean, there's no stronger way to say that you'll never face that death penalty than what he said there. Believers shall never be separated from God's love. Wow, what, a, what an incredible 
truth that is in Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And you know what the answer is? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we look at our position. We mentioned this too, John 3, 16, 1 John 5, 13. Believers presently possess eternal life. This is life that lasts forever. You know, and I just, I, I just, I say this facetiously, but I think many people view God as a life insurance salesman. And, and you've had the life, and I mean, everyone probably has had a life insurance salesman in their life, try to sell them life insurance. And what do they do? You know, oftentimes they, they bring the, the whole life right out of the box and you're like, wow, that's just too expensive. I can't afford that. And what do they do? They go to term life. They go to a a limited term. Why do they do that? Because it's cheaper. But then what do they tell you in that meeting? And if you ever want to convert it to whole life later, you can, right? If you ever want to convert it, that's not how God gave the promise of eternal life. He didn't say, you know what? If you believe in me, you're, you're on your way to eternal life. And one day you can convert that to eternal if you behave well enough, if you fly right. He comes out of the box, guaranteeing whole life, eternal life. Why? Because it has nothing to do with you. This is why he can make the promises that has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And see, that's his promise. And at that moment, it's not something that you'll get when you die. It's something you possess the moment you believe. It's a present tense possession of something that lasts forever. And again, if you can lose eternal life in five years, it's not eternal life by definition. It just, it can't, it doesn't even make sense, logical sense. The other thing we see, and again, we're flying through this, but believers are kept by the power of God. God is the one who protects. God is the one who guards. God is the one who secures eternal salvation for those who put their faith in his son. And so it's important to note, again, if, if all we had was God's word, that should be enough. And we got it. We have lots of promises in God's word. We could look again at a whole lesson just looking at God's promises. But you know, the second reason that God can secure all the blessings that he's promised is because grace is grace. And I know that sounds maybe cliched and it almost doesn't make sense. Well, of course, grace is grace. That's like looking up a definition in the dictionary for a word that you're really trying to understand and it like defines it by using the same word. You're like, that didn't help me at all. Grace, by definition, is grace. And we've got to understand that the reason that God can make these unconditional, unilateral promises is because the underlying basis for him making these promises is his grace. And grace, by definition, is what? You could never earn or deserve any of these promises or blessings anyways. That's the whole point of grace. Grace says, I'm going to give you something that you don't earn or deserve. And and I'm going to give you something that you could never earn or deserve. Now, when you take the contrast of that, if we can never earn or deserve any of these blessings, then you can never do something to unearn them. Because if I can do something to unearn them, then they are earned still at some level. And and one of the things I love about the grace of God is, is grace means there's no strings attached. You ever been given something by somebody with strings attached? How comfortable is that situation? That's that's not a good situation. You get something with strings attached. Did you really get it freely? No, there's requirements. There's expectations on what you might do. Grace to be grace doesn't allow for that. 
And that's what we've got to understand. You know, imagine a, a man telling his wife at the altar, you know, it's, it's one of those beautiful times I joke in, in wedding ceremonies. It's like, I always lean over to Carrie and I say, man, this, this husband's lying to his future wife right here. He says he's going to love her all the time. He says he's going to do this for her. He says he's going to do that. And I know that guy won't do it all the time. He's just lying to her right in front of this room of witnesses. And then when she does it to her husband, she's like, hey, she's doing the same thing. And we, we like to joke about it. But you know, what's, what's interesting is, is those promises we make when we get married. Imagine if a, if a husband was like, well, I will love you forever till the day I die unless you put on extra, you know, 15 pounds. And then all bets are off. It's this, this conditional thing. Or the wife says, man, I, I love you until the day you die. But if you start going bald, you know, all bets are off. We would be mortified to attend a wedding like that. We're like, who, who did the premarital counseling for these kids? You know, like, what's going on here? But sometimes I think people view God's salvation this way, as if he's making those kind of contingencies up here when he's promising eternal salvation. But again, for grace to be grace, there's no requirements attached from the person. It's completely free. Why? Because Jesus paid it in full. There's nothing left to require in that sense. And just consider the list that we looked at earlier, the blessings. Can someone be unborn? Can someone be unredeemed? I mean, just, just take unborn for a second. Anybody, anybody that's had kids has had a kid that's disobeyed them, maybe even like with gusto, <laughs> like in your face kind of disobedience. Have you ever once thought when they did that, okay, you're going to be unborn. We're, we're taking you back to the hospital. We're going to get this thing reversed. It doesn't make sense because birth implies what? A, a sense of permanence. There's a sense of permanence in birth. Can somebody be unborn? Can somebody be unredeemed? Can somebody be unforgiven? Can somebody be unadopted? Can somebody be unjustified? And this is big. Can somebody be ununited to Jesus Christ? And this is where we want to spend really the bulk of the time here is on this third point. The third reason, and we want to dig into this a little bit more, that God can guarantee the blessings that he's promised to us, including eternal security, is because of our position in Christ. This is one of the things we want to develop more. I believe that the mechanism, the mechanics, if you will, behind the scenes of what God did to accomplish these things in order to make those promises that he'll never have to retract is secured and guaranteed in our position in Jesus Christ. In fact, God places each and every believer in this. It's an unchangeable, it's an unalterable position. And it's in this position that he's able to guarantee all of the blessings, including eternal security. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just want to point out a couple of things here because it's, I think it's very important to, to set the stage. We're going to try to try to build this up to a crescendo when we start to look at some of really three amazing things that are the result of being in Christ. But let's figure out like, how did God do this? When did he do this? Did he do this kind of thing? And so let's just kind of build our position. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26, Paul writing says this, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world 
to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that, which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Key verse here, verse 29. Why did he do this? Why does God do this? See that word that kind of gives us a, an idea of purpose. Why did God choose to act this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Jump down to verse 31. We'll read verse 30 in a second. Just want you to see the theme. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Okay, so what are we to glory in? That God doesn't, doesn't choose the wise of the world. He chooses the foolish. That he's got this different approach to how he wants to get his job done. That's part of it. But what I skipped over was verse 30. This to me is it's where it's at. But of him, speaking of God, let me go back to verse 29 so we kind of get that ramp up, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are where? You're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so what we learn there in verse 30 is this, God is the one who placed you in Jesus Christ. You did not place yourself there. You did not work your way into that position. You did not get promoted into that position through your behavior. God himself placed you in Jesus Christ. God did it. He wanted that position to be yours. He determined he was gonna do that. The other thing that we see is when we talk about Jesus Christ, notice what the verse says. He became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And notice that he didn't give us these things, right? Sometimes we, we talk in terms of that, especially righteousness. We'll say, well, Jesus gave us his righteousness. And, and I know what we're saying. We're kind of using shorthand. But you know what? It's better than that. Look at the text. He himself is these things for us. You see how that's not going to be unchanging? Do you see how if Jesus Christ is your righteousness before God, that righteousness will never have a drop off one day in human history from this point forward to infinity future. Jesus Christ can never stop being righteous. And guess what? He's your righteousness. He is your righteousness before God. He is your sanctification before God. He is your wisdom before God. See, everything good about you is found in Jesus Christ. Everything acceptable to God is found in Jesus Christ. So why are we looking for things inside of ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God when we've got a perfect representative before God who is these things? He doesn't try to be these things. He won't one day be these things. He is these things for you. He is these things for each one of us. And then verse 31, we see that God did it this way. Why? So he would get the glory. He doesn't want to share the glory with anybody, and nor should he. Jesus Christ should not, he should not share the glory with anybody. Have, you, have we ever read the gospels? Have we ever read what he did? He, he deserves it all. I think you guys would agree with me on that. And it no way depends on you. It wholly depends on him. And you know what? He did what needed to be done and he did it well and acceptable to God the Father. And that is who we are accepted in. This is gonna be tough. This is gonna feel like the old sword drill activities in Sunday school. Get your Bibles open to Romans 6. 
okay? And we're just gonna kind of go in order here. I just want to move through this quickly because I just wanna consider some of the benefits that we have because we're in Christ. And I want you to notice in all of these passages, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's this emphasis on our position. By the way, I'm gonna move through this quickly. Please do not try to write it down. I don't want you getting arthritis. I don't want you injuring your hand. We're gonna put this list out on our Facebook page this week, our church Facebook page. If you don't get Facebook and you want the list, just email me, I'll send it to you. Hands-free for a couple minutes. Just flip your Bibles with me as we look in this. John 1, 4, Romans 6, 23. Let's just look at Romans 6, 23 since we're, we're gonna move in order. I want you to see that eternal life is in Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're gonna see that we are redeemed in Christ. And, and let's go, for, actually, you know what? Let's stay in Romans 3 because we'll just go backwards for a second. I lied to you. I said we'd be flipping right. Well, there's our one flip left. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.11, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8.1, Nate read this earlier. We are uncondemnable in Christ, therefore, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39, we have unconditional love because we are in Christ. Romans 8.39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jump with me to 2 Corinthians 2.14. Your victory is found in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, we're always triumphant in Christ. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we'll spend a little bit more time in this verse, but we are new creations in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.21, really coinciding with 1 Corinthians 1.30. We read here, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him, right? So we're seeing this positional truth develop. Galatians 2.4 tells us we have liberty in Christ. This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stuff despite our liberty, which we have, where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Galatians 3.14, we see that the blessing of Abraham, the promised Holy Spirit, are given because we are in Christ. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3.28, social distinctions that we establish for ourselves are erased in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That means the value of every believer is on equal footing in the sight of God because of our position in Christ. It's all coming there. Ephesians 1.3, we read that earlier, but we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. 
We're going to be studying Ephesians here in April. That's the next book study we're going to do. And man, that is such a fun... Do you know that in verse verse 3, chapter 1 of verse 3 to verse 14, it's one run-on sentence? It's like Paul can't get it out quick enough. He's so excited. He's like... It's like the... You know, when like your little kids are trying to tell you something and they just... You got to like calm them down. They're about to hyperventilate. You know, it's like Paul's literally hyperventilating in Ephesians 1 talking about what we have in Christ, the riches that we possess, but we see that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1.7, we're forgiven in Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.11, we have an inheritance in Christ. Again, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose and the counsel of his will. Ephesians 2.7, 2 Timothy 2.1, God's grace is extended to us in Christ. Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near in Christ. And just for time's sake, I'm just going to read these bullet points. Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and access in Christ. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Christ. Colossians 2.11, you're spiritually circumcised in Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10, salvation is in Christ. And that just deserves a doxology of praise. I mean, this is just incredible, all the things. And that's not even a, I guarantee that's not a comprehensive list. That's not even comprehensive about what you possess as a believer in Christ. Now, those are what's true of you. How did it work? Again, we, we know God did it. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But how did he do it? What was the mechanics or the mechanism by which he did it? Well, the way that God enacted his plan, the way he placed us in Christ Jesus was through spiritual baptism. Now, when I say baptism, depending on your background and kind of your exposure to that word, you may automatically think water. I know me growing up, that's what I thought. I said, baptism, okay, the river, the lake, the baptismal church. I mean, I just thought water, 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 water. And you know, when we look at the main baptisms of the Bible, there's seven of them and four of them are dry. Four of them have nothing to do with water. Three of them do. And that's how we typically think of. But the word generically, the the general meaning of the word baptism means to identify with, to place into. So when we talk about spiritual baptism, we're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about a baptism that the Spirit of God did to you, whether you realize it or not. And we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me, because this is the the means, if you will, by which God put us in Christ, by which he placed us in Christ. And spiritual baptism happens the moment a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for them. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, let's just really quickly look at that verse because there's some elements. Who's doing the baptizing there? Well, the Spirit of God is doing the baptizing there. And what is he baptizing us into? The Jordan River, the lake, the baptismal? Or is he baptizing us into a body being the body of Christ. That's what he's doing. This is a dry baptism. So what's he saying? He's identifying you as a believer with Jesus Christ. He's placing you into Jesus Christ, which just fits with everything that we've looked at in terms of our position in Christ. 
This is how God did it. This is the mechanism by which he placed us in Christ. It was through spiritual baptism. Notice again, how many of us were baptized into one body? Just the real spiritual Christians? Just the ones who promised to quit sinning? No, all. I mean, it's all. It's everyone who put their faith in Christ. They are now baptized into the body of Christ. And so it's due to this spiritual baptism, and this is so key because this is where we want to build off of this. As a result of this, you have been united with Jesus Christ. And not just united with him, you know, in a, a mystical way or anything like that, but specifically the Bible says that you have been united with Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and his session. Now, session is a word we don't use a lot. That might not sound as familiar to us, but let's let the scriptures show us this. Because in Ephesians 2, go ahead and turn with me there. Again, we're going to flip a lot this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5, 4 through 6. I mean, notice the amount of times the phrase together is found in the translation of these verses. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive, look at that, together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's raised us up together, and he's made us sit together in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. And so we see this just this element, emphasized, emphasized. Whether you realize it or not as a believer, you have been identified with Jesus Christ in such a way that you share in his death with him, you share in his resurrection with him, you share in his ascension with him, and you share in his, his position of seated before the Father right now. How many times, in fact, I, it's a great question, just even for myself, how many times do I go through my day viewing myself in light of my geographical position on earth instead of my geographical position in heaven. And oftentimes, I I view myself as imploring God to act from way up there down here. And yet, if I took my rightful position, conceptually, I could just look to my left (laughs) and say, God, let's look down upon us here and, and, and be with me as I walk with you in that geographical sphere. Oftentimes, we don't think of ourselves this way, but God does. And as it goes back to eternal security, if you're tied together with Jesus Christ, can you see how much more secure we are? Look at Colossians 3. Just jump to the right, a couple books. Colossians 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. And this time, I want you to notice the amount of time that Paul uses the word with in this passage. Colossians 3.1. By the way, I, I could cheat because I could jump back up to 2.20 and grab another with, which Let's do it. Let's cheat. Colossians 2.20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and by the way, it's first class condition if you died with him, and let's assume that you did for argument's sake. You did is the idea. If you died with Christ, jump down to verse one of chapter three. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. In God, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so we see the the way God views us now is in direct union with Jesus Christ. Very important to see. I know we don't feel that way sometimes, but that is God's viewpoint 
of us. This is what God accomplished by placing us in Christ. And you know what? As if that wasn't good enough, Colossians 1.27, if you jump back, not only says that we are in Christ, but look at what Colossians 1.27 says. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? You in Christ or Christ in you? And he says the hope of glory. And so you, not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. And it's like, it's like this. It's like a chain link. Like, where does that stop? Where does that start? How do I get that unhitched? And the answer to the question is, you don't. You can't unhitch it. <laughs> That's what's beautiful about the truth of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, to close out this morning, I just want to look at three amazing, amazing, as if this hasn't been amazing enough as in terms of what the Word of God has already said. I want to look at some, some amazing things that, that happens because we are unified with Jesus Christ, because we are in Christ. And the first one I want to look at is this, this idea of identity. And that's really the first one. We have a new identity, and it's an unchangeable identity. And I want you to go back with me to 2 Corinthians 5 as we look at this really quickly. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. In fact, what are you supposed to do when you go to the the driver's license office and you have to get a new license? What are you supposed to do with the old license? Supposed to cut it up. Yeah, unless you're running some kind of scheme out of your (laughs) basement, you know. You're supposed to cut it up, supposed to give it back. Same, same with passports. You're supposed to have one identity. You know, and that's true in the spiritual realm. As you sit here this morning, you have one of two identities. You can't have both. You've got one. You're either whatever your first name is, in Adam. That's your identity. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in Adam. But if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer in Adam. That's not your identity. Your identity is now that you are in Christ. We've got this new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, it'd be beneficial to say that this verse is not speaking about behavior. I grew up in a church that emphasized this verse with behavior. And basically, if you are a true Christian, they would say, then this verse shows that you won't live like an old sinful heathen like you used to do. I mean, obviously, we want to encourage Christians to grow. I'm not saying, no, no, they can live wherever they want. We want to encourage Christians to grow. This is not what this verse is teaching at all. It's not talking about behavior. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 16. He's talking about how do we regard somebody? How do we view somebody? And we need to view them in terms of their accurate identity. And if you're in Christ, you're a new creation right? And this is the emphasis here. So when Paul says, and and you jump down at the very bottom of that verse, he says, all things have become new. He uses a perfect tense for the verb has become, okay? Have become. And remember, maybe from a couple weeks ago, the Greek perfect tense is very insightful here because what does it mean? Completed event with ongoing results in the present. So what he's saying is you have become a new creation and you remain a new creation. That's the emphasis here. And so he's emphasizing permanency. So again, why is this amazing? Why is our unification, our position in Christ, our unity with him, why is this so important as it relates to our new identity? Because you've got a new and unchangeable identity. 
It cannot change. You are who you are in the sight of God. It's always going to be this case, and it's continually according to his plan and how he views it. And that's encouraging when it comes to our eternal security. The second thing we want to look at, the amazing thing, is that based on our union with Christ, we can never die spiritually or eternally. This is an incredible truth. Now, we can die physically, but what do we also know if we die physically? We won't stay dead based on our union with Jesus Christ. In fact, look at Colossians 2.20. We were just there. Let's go back there really quickly. Colossians 2.20, first class condition, it says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, again, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Now, this is a first class condition assuming the reality of what he's saying to be true. The idea is if you died with Christ and you did, Let's assume that you did. You might even say since in this context. So whether or not we realize it or not, our union with Jesus Christ has taken us into his death with him. You you sit here today, you may not even realize that you died. You're like, wow, when did that happen? I didn't feel it. It was like an old cartoon one time, a lady in a group of people, she said, well, I don't know if I've died with Christ, but I felt kind of faint once. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about objective truth from God's perspective that you have died with Christ because of your union with Jesus Christ. Very important to understand. This is not something you do to yourself. A lot of people talk about, I'm gonna crucify myself. I'm gonna kill myself. That's not, it's not an imperative command to be obeyed. It's an indicative truth to be believed. It's an objective truth that's already happened. Why is this so important? This is why it's so important. It's just so critical. This death with Christ, our death with Christ, is so valid in God's estimation that even though Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto men once to die, and then after that, the judgment, do you know that one generation of believers will not even die physically? And you can say, well, how does that work with Hebrews 9.27? I'll tell you why. Because we died with Christ. That death is so valid that there's an entire generation of believers that will never have to die physically because they've experienced that death through their union with Jesus Christ. It's incredible. That's incredible truth. And this is why Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, if you were then raised with Christ, and again, first class condition, let's assume that you were and you were. And so the idea is that not only have you died with Christ, but you've been raised with Christ. In other words, our positional unity with Christ in his death guarantees our future eternal life with him as well. Because the believer is united with Christ, what's true of Jesus is also true of the believer. Everyone knows what this is. It's a box. And if I were to put my phone in this box and I were to put this box up on this table, where would my phone be? It'd be on the table, right? Now, if I dug a a hole that was six foot deep and I put this box, which contained my phone, into the hole and covered it with dirt, where would my phone be? It would be in the dirt, six feet under. And if I took this box up on top of a building and I set it there, where would my phone be? It would be on the top of the building. And how would you know that? Can you see my phone? No, but you know what? My phone's in the box. And where the box goes, my phone goes. And see, that to me illustrates this concept beautifully. You are in Christ. And where Jesus is, that's where you'll be. This is why even Jesus in John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then what does he go on to say? That where I am, 
you may be also. And see, God has set it up that way that your unity and union with Jesus Christ is such that if Jesus is here, you're here. If Jesus has died to sin, you've died to sin. If Jesus is raised to newness of life to God the Father, so are you. And if Jesus has ascended, you have ascended with him. And if Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father, you are seated in him right now before God the Father. And I want you to consider that, that every time God the Father looks to his right and smiles at his dearly beloved son, he's smiling at you because you are in Christ. This is so valuable. If Jesus dies no more, according to Romans 6 and Revelation 1, then the believer dies no more because what's true of Jesus is now true of you. And this is why we can never face the death penalty. This is why God just can just scream off of the page that if you believe in my dearly beloved son, you'll never perish. No, not ever, ever into the ages, you know, forever. I mean, as is how he says it in John 10. This is so important to understand. Let me just make one more point and I'm going to move quickly. A third amazing thing. This is a whole sermon series of, of itself. This is incredible. Let's wrap our mind around this. You as a believer, by being placed in Christ, you have been severed from our connection, your connection to the sin nature. You have been severed. You have been removed from, separated from. This is so important. And and in fact, Paul uses two ways to illustrate this truth. The first is in Romans chapter six, and you'll see this in Galatians 2.20 and other places. Paul describes the severance from the sin nature in Romans 6 to as the believer having died to sin. The common definition for death means separation. You have been separated in your relationship to sin. You have been severed. What does that mean? Well, that means that when the believer has died to sin, that our, through our union with Jesus Christ, our relationship to sin has been severed and we are no longer, and this is very key, automatically connected or dominated by sin as a source to live life. We can go back. That's, that's what Romans 6 teaches. We can go back and present ourselves to be controlled and influenced by sin. That happens every time we walk outside of the will of God. That's what happens. But you know what? You don't have to. That's good news. You've been severed from that. You've been completely separated from that source of sin. The other thing that he uses as an illustration is spiritual circumcision. Colossians 2, 11 through 12, he says that a believer was circumcised, the text tells us, with the circumcision made without hands. So we're not talking about physical circumcision. We're talking about a spiritual circumcision. And what is it? It's the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so he's using this again as an illustration that, that we have been cut off or, or that automatic connection from sin has been severed. He uses this again as an illustration. So here's the question. Why is this amazing or important? I mean, that's cool. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. In and of itself, it's kind of cool. Why is this important? Why is this valid based on our, you know, considering eternal security? Well, I want to close here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And I believe Romans 8, 1 through 3 is just going to give us the, the reason why this is so incredible in a nutshell. Romans 8, 1, which we've read a couple of times this morning, says, is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, let me just point something out about that very last phrase in verse three. Notice he doesn't say he condemned sins. 
okay? That word in the Greek is singular, and it's articulated. He condemned the sin. And if we go all the way back to Romans 5.12, that, that whole section in between, Paul is talking about the sin, the source of sin. This is what we're talking about here. And this is why this is so amazing. As a result of this separation from our sin nature, God is now free to declare that the believer in Jesus Christ will not be condemned. Why? Because the indwelling source of sin, the very source of what every sinful action, thought, word, and deed sprung from was condemned in Jesus Christ's death to sin, in your death to sin. And so this is what's so important. The very source of every sin that we've ever committed, the sin nature, is under strict condemnation of God. The final condemnation will take place at the believer's glorification. And what the, the good news is that the very source of sin that sometimes often still dominates us when we present ourselves to it, it is sitting on death row waiting for its execution on your day of glorification. That's what we wait for. So when we talk about eternal security, let me paint this a different picture. (laughs) It's just like putting this all together. It's just so incredible. I don't know if you know if you can verbalize it very well. Not only did Jesus Christ pay the penalty for every act of sin emanating from this sin nature, this source of sin, but the sin nature itself has been condemned. Everything that could condemn you to hell has been taken care of by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He took care of the penalty of sin. He took care of the power of sin. He took, he's gonna take care of the very presence of sin. He did it all. And all of this is as a result of the great position that you now possess in Jesus Christ. Anything that could condemn you, acts of sin, source of sin, you are separated from, they have been judged so that you don't have to be judged. And this is why John 3.16, as simple as it is, means so much. Would you quote it with me? And then let's pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. And glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for the work that he accomplished. I thank you, God, for your, just, your, your perfect plan and how you put all this together. I, I thank you for our incredible position in Christ. It is something that we don't deserve, we, we will never earn, and yet, Lord, by faith, we, we receive that blessing. We don't, we don't know why you were so kind and gracious to us. We don't know why you determined to do it this way, but Lord, we are thankful. I know that. That is definitely our response. And so we just praise you and thank you for the great salvation that you won. You're our hero and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.